netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. For this set, we're taking a bit of a break from visual effects and instead concentrating on cinematography. Our guest for this episode is Ed Moore, DP of the Apple TV Plus series Hijack, which centers around a flight that's hijacked on his trip from Dubai to London. Now, we've known Ed for a long time, having worked with him on the Red Dwarf Back to Earth miniseries with FXBHD back in 2009. He's worked on a variety of high-end shows and films, including the Doctor Who TV series, as well as Vera, for which he received a Royal Television Society Award for Best Cinematography back in 2018. Now, by its nature, the Hijack series spends a lot of its time, or much of its time, inside the plane. One might logically think they'd build a set which would be, quote, simple to film on, where maybe some areas, half the fuselage might be open space, so lights and camera would be easy to set up and frame shots. But instead, they made the conscious decision to film within a set which recreates the actual airplane fuselage and seats. And as you hear, they didn't build a set and then take, about a, take out a bunch of seats so they could fit the camera and lights in on a scene-by-scene basis. They actually worked around the constraints of the environment. And for me on screen, this ends up being quite effective as there's this feeling of like almost claustrophobia of being enclosed in the space. And it really helps with the realism and drama within the series. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation a lot including a very cool technique for mimicking the sunlight outside the airplane windows. So let's go ahead now and cross to Mike, speaking with Ed Moore. So I was just super into um, watching the uh, uh, watching Hijack, and it finished like the second ep, I think it was, and I was like just standing up going, oh, this is awesome. I'm so looking forward to this. And just as I was about to click the button, I went, wait, stop. And my wife was like, what's going on? I'm like, back up. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say, because we had a lot of people be like, wait, they've only put the first like two apps up. Like it ends on such a cliff. Well, they all end on cliffhangers. Cliffhangers, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. People have been uh, a little upset. It, they can't binge everything all at once. But um, I'm glad the name stood out to you. It totally did, yeah. I mean, I've been watching with some interest in the stuff that you've been doing lately, which has been terrific. Um, from you know, Thank obviously you. from the dwarf phase, but also Doctor Who and just a bunch of other stuff. But I wanted to talk to you about hijack, so I will. <laughs> Though all your stuff is super interesting. Um, so I guess the question that I sensible place to start with is: When did you get involved in the project? How conceptualized was it when you got involved? Well, I was lucky enough to. Uh, do Jim Phil Smith, the, the showrunner, uh, I did his previous job, which was um, a drama about the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. Um, and uh, that was um, literally sort of, I, I think when we were in pre-production on Litvinenko, Jim had found out that the hijack um, had been kind of green lit. So uh, at, at the time, you know, it was very, you know, it sounded super interesting. I never thought in a million years I would get a chance to shoot it because I just started working with Jim. Hijack was this huge project. Um, but it was fun to sort of knock ideas around and be like, yeah, if I did this. So, um, yeah, I guess it, I ended up with like a three month project to gradually just sort of nip away at Jim and persuade him that I might be, um, you know, a, a good person to consider. Um, but yeah, so that was that was really exciting. So I, I you know, they uh, Jim and, and his um, um, writing partner George K had already. Um, I think George had come up with the idea for the show. They'd already kind of you know written treatments. I think by this point, uh, you know, a number of scripts existed already. So um, you know, the, the concept of the show was pretty pretty solid by then. But we, we weren't exactly sure how everything was going to be um, carried off. And we knew that um, Apple had previously done a show with a lot of kind of volume work, and that was that was a possibility. Um, but I got in like, you know, fairly early. Like we knew what the, the bones of the show were, but not precisely how it was going to be executed. It's it's execution, if we can just go straight there, is fascinating because of the sheer scale. But by the same token, it also feels quite tight when it's being shown. I don't know how much those sections came away, but I was simultaneously thinking, have they shot this in like a, 
you know, a, like a, maybe a plane that you'd gone to the Mojave Desert over because it felt so real. But by the same time, I'm thinking, how the hell do you get to like to light it and to kind of, you know, dramatically do the things that you need to do? So were you straight away going to the idea of just building such an enormous set? And Well, I think I, I'm, I'm pleased you, um, you think that um, because it was really important to us that it felt like it was, you know, completely legit. And, and you, uh, Jim was saying right from the start, like he wants the, the camera to be sort of trapped in this pressure vessel with them, uh, with all the characters. There's no escape. Like if you, there's, there's very few points in the show um in which you know that we're with the storyline on the plane in which you, you you see from outside the plane there's there's a couple of establishing shots and there's there's stuff later on where you see from other aircraft that may or may not be alongside but pretty much the rule is the camera's inside the plane and it's somewhere it sort of could physically be um, so you know and that that you know we also wanted to make sure that the the camera could travel throughout those 216 passengers on the plane. Um, we wanted, we didn't have them all in all the time, but we wanted to make sure it felt like, you know, the reality of the whole aircraft that you could, you could um, travel right from the flight deck all the way down to the rear galley um, and see everything you wanted to. So um, there's a company called Shoot Aviation, um, who've got a whole number of sort of aircraft sections and bits and pieces. But, you know, usually when a show is doing, you might have a scene on a plane or a section on a plane. Um, I, you know, I don't know if anyone has done as long on a plane as we have now in terms of, um, you know, one one location. So a lot of the kind of set pieces that existed, um, which were, in part sections of real aircraft like um things like you know overhead um luggage bins and the chairs and kind of a lot of the hardware and stuff would all be from real aircraft some sections would be um you know had been manufactured separately so there was kind of this library of pieces that we um had to choose from to kind of make our aircraft um and uh, you know a lot of the the kind of stuff that's set up for filming has been made like slightly bigger to make it more convenient most people would would want that flexibility to have a bit more space uh, we didn't want that we wanted it to be as cramped so ours is, is millimeter perfect we got rid of all of the kind of extra sections in fact the only dimensions on that plane that aren't accurate are um the 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 length of some of the galley sections are slightly extended just because we have scenes with lots and lots of people in the galleys um and we've added a, a meter of space um, behind the pilots inside the flight deck just again for, for for practical reasons but that's really the only concession we never um i mean there was a team of people who sort of worked with that set all the time and they were they were there on hand to change things but we never took a wall out we never um took a chair out even like we always worked with really the confines of where we could put a camera yeah so um um uh, john tyler um fantastic camera operator and, and i squeezed ourselves into all kinds of little gaps we had a whole plethora of camera gadgets and bits and so pieces but that that camera is always inside the plane so there's a number of shots obviously i'm by the way i'm up to the latest episode five so um okay i've seen everything that has been out. So like the character Sam is sitting there, his chair, there's a lot of shots, obviously from the side, looking at him as he's like doing, I don't know, um, bits of notes or sending messages via interco uh, the game system of the plane and stuff. And for all of that, you're still just managing to get your camera position just in the narrow confines of the aisle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, th that, that first class section um, is an old, I think British airways, first class section from 20 30 years ago um so i <laughs> we didn't have too much choice there i learned to, the the particular seats in first class i still have sort of nightmares about with these giant wing back edges in sort of like a you know a skin tony matte plastic it's, it's not your dream as a cinematographer to surround your main character in the sort of beige plastic that cuts out but um yeah it it made it interesting for sure i mean we i mean that section yeah i mean nothing nothing was adjusted we always found a way to get ourselves in um we started um uh with a rolling two remote head on the plane a lot of the time uh, and i would operate from outside um to try and get into smaller places but um and we we also looked at uh, john had this, had his steady cam rig which worked really great and then we looked at in fact putting the 
uh, roll into on the steady cam to use as, as a sort of you know trinity type rig um and we we, we even made in like uh, at ari uh, supplied all our cameras and were incredibly supportive. When we were Ari prepping, we made a kind of assault course for Jono with all the correct dimensions. Like the narrowest point of the plane is is kind of going through the galley sections on each side on each aisle. So we kind of we created a lot of obstacles to see what we could physically get through. And um, the 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 Ronin two on a steady cam rig was it was it worked really well, but it was just too like you couldn't really get much speed up. You couldn't have the confidence because you had kind of millimeters on either side. So um, the Ronin two, um, go on, Mike. Sorry. No, I was going to say like which actual camera were you using? Of the arrows, so we were on we were on mini LFs. Um, we had um, Alexa mini LFs. We had the DNA um, uh, prime lenses. Um, uh, a, a combination of um, actually the the Ari have the the DNAs, which are uh, people know them from Euphoria. You know they're they're kind of a beautiful set of um, um, of medium format lenses of of slightly unknown origin. Uh, they've all been rehoused. Ari like to say that DNA stands for do not ask. Um, so yeah, there there is some sort of I, I suspect medium format stills background to a lot of the optical elements in those lenses, and and they are. Um, uh, sort of, the, I mean, that aren't really sets of the DNAs. You sort of go and they bring out all of the various, um, you know, individual primes of each focal length because they're all kind of different, and you kind of pick, mix, and match the ones you like. So there was, um, there was like a a fifty mil that that was just different to all the other fifty mils. Um, so we we had a set of those which we I generally kept as hero lenses for Idris, just so his were a little uh, more special, and then. Ari also have they call them DNA LFs, and they're um, they are a little bit more of a sort of conventional set of primes. So we had a couple of sets of those as well, um, which are uh, pretty different actually from the the DNA primes. Um, but uh, we use those for most other characters. But I'd so imagine the, the Ronin. I was going to say, I'd imagine that you would you could lean into the wider lenses, but there didn't seem to be distortion uh, in the footage. Which would have, I guess, taken me out of the story. So, what was your kind of go-to solution on lensing? Well, you know what, like I, um, I love a bit of wide and close. Um, who doesn't? And and I think initially, I felt like that's where we would be. But actually, it became really obvious with just the nature of the set, all those kind of long vanishing lines, and and the and the tension that actually the longer we went, the the better it worked. It just kind of brought everyone together. So, um, you know, the, the, the kind of default lens that the ACs would bring in on a finder, like for a crew show would be a 50 mil. I mean, a fi- the 50 mil on the LF uh, sensor was, was, was kind of our, our standard. We rarely went, um, much wider than that. Um, we did lots of, um, you know, pretty. I mean, again, I I love doing really graphic frames, big headroom, and kind of crazy stuff. It didn't feel right on this show, so we, you know, it's just it's so thrillery intense. We we're really kind of like, you know, almost no headroom really in there. Um, so yeah. So while I can imagine you crouching into corners and getting operators to mm-hmm. like, you know, lie in awkward places. I mean, I can kind of imagine how you solve that. I swear to God, I can't know how you solve the lighting problems because like you just had this effectively 360 degree set and it should be god awful lighting because it's above and uniform and yet not wrapping around in any nice kind of way and even i mean obviously the windows are open sometimes there's a you know bit where they're all shut deliberately but nevertheless that's not giving you a big area light it's a window that's you know shit small compared to what we'd we'd like Oh, for sure, and and we should just put a pin in the camera thing and come back to you because I I have to talk to you about the DJI Ronin 4D, which solved a lot of. Oh, the okay. I'm sorry. Well, let's do that. Let's, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you, you off. You want to talk yeah, about that first? Yeah, yeah, no, sure. No, that's, that's quite all right. So yeah, I mean that was so the 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 4D, which if you haven't seen it, is you know we everyone is 
I know he's now calling it chicken cam because of that, the sort of the famous viral video of what happens when you hold a chicken's body and its head stays in exactly the same place. Is this wild product that DJI came out with that it's, it, it is a complete sort of cinema camera in itself. It has the, the sense of the recording medium and everything. It's not just a stabilizer, but it is also a stabilizer. So it's a, a three axis stabilized sort of miniature head with a, a vertical arm that's kind of actively stabilized. And that was, um, it was something that I considered shooting the whole show on, um, but it, it was such a new camera that it just didn't really quite feel like, um, I didn't feel comfortable doing everything on it. But we we got hold of one to use as kind of a, you know, a stunt camera almost for special shots. And that thing, I mean, I would say approaching half the show is probably shot on the 4d uh when it's on the plane and you can't tell like it it's it, it intercuts with the alexa um there would there would it's there's 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 shot and reverse shot on you know idris and other characters and one side of it's on a 4d so in terms of image quality it it was um it was not an issue at all, but the flexibility physically of having this thing that you could put in just tiny places um, that that, with, that had a, a, a full frame sensor. I had the Zeiss Batis primes on it, which were, you know, mostly T2. Um, I had a glimmer glass on them, so just to take the edge off, and they they cut fine with the the DNA primes that way. Um, but this thing, you know. It, you, you've got the proper wheels offset so you can operate in the same way that everything feels very kind of like cinematic and solid that way. But you could also, giving that the, the camera, the 4D body to Jono, who's just an exceptional Steadicam operator, and just in terms of his ability to move with cast and know where to put a where to put a sensor for a given moment of, of drama, and, and, and then me being able to operate offset and do the kind of the pan and tilt. There are some shots that we achieved on that plane that I just don't think there, there's any other way you could have done. It was just exceptionally useful um, and, and almost embarrassingly fast. Like it, it just comes out of the box with a transmitter, with with focus, with LiDAR like uh, focus distancing. The, the, you know, it's it just crazy how quick this thing is up and running. Um, so there were a few times where I felt slightly guilty that we had these beautiful Alexas and prime lenses and stuff kind of sitting on the magliner whilst, uh, this, this 4d uh, would be just hoovering stuff up. Um, so, you know, it's not without its limitations. You definitely notice that there's, there's at least a couple of stops less dynamic range than the Alexas. Like, you know, the, the, the color is, is not quite as good. Um, we had, we were lucky enough to have a, um, great dit live grading on set so you know we sort of didn't notice on set and then by the time it got to uh to color um all of that was matched in but yeah i, I really like hats off to dji with that camera because it was like it was made for the show yeah yeah and what res was that recording at that was that's actually that was hard. um it was actually 6K. higher than the alexa weirdly yeah it was 6k, 6K. yeah um um and so uh, yeah we were I can't remember what we were on the, we were, yeah, three, whatever the Ari Raw mode on the um, sure. Alexis is. Um, but yeah, I mean, the combination. So yeah, the, 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 my Ronin 2 with the Alexa minis in, with, with the LFs in, was, was sort of banned from the set eventually because it was just too, too big, really. I used it tons off the set, um, uh, off the plane. Um, but um, yeah, the 4D on the plane. Uh, I, I, it's like, and it, it does show, I mean, there's some, there's some stuff in episode three where you're, you're just traveling the full length of plane. We had a, I can't remember how many days we had a few days where just the, we loaded the whole plane. Like it was absolutely, I mean, I hats off to the hair and makeup costume team. Like we getting 216 people onto a plane all, you know, we shot over five, six months, having that number of people look identical for, a, you know, what all happens over seven hours keeping those people, getting them in, getting them ready. I don't know how they did that. But um, to, to have that camera be able to, to travel the whole length with action and, and just hit really specific um, action beats was just a joy. So getting back to my early, and, and I take nothing away, that's terrific, but getting back to my other earlier point, like while I can conceive of how you could do some awkward camera work with you know stuffing yourself in corners i really can't see mm -hmm. how you lit it so can i can i bug you on that of course no i mean yeah me too i was and i was really you know it I, is it any 
DP's dream to be shooting a scene in a plane. You're like it's it, it just there's there's like you know I've done scenes in planes before, but it's like it's okay as a as a as like one note in a in a larger project. But like I was really worried about it just feeling super samey and kind of because it, it, like the this it couldn't be hyper stylized like it had to feel real um that's just the the style of the show so trying to find a way that that, that there would be visual interest all the time so uh, one thing i had in my corner i guess is that because we we're spending 75 percent of our time on the set like it was we were able to put a fair bit of resources into making um you know to do quite a lot of custom work so um uh where to start i guess with the with the the, the big thing was was getting a um a, a sun basically like to have a sort of a key light that would um uh, you know feel like give you a sense of the outside and ideally give a sense of movement so um i'm a one of the you know many fun things to me on this job is i've always been a huge flight sim nerd so like almost the first thing i did when i heard about the job was like do this flight divide to heathrow in flight sim on the date of the show look at the sun path um uh where it would be for the timing of the show so you know fortunately the sun pretty much always falls on the on the left wing um so uh I was able to, to, you know, do then a very expensive lighting rig, but only down one side of the plane. Um, so the, the way I did it in the end was for, for every um, window down that side, which are sort of 70, 80, uh, I had a the, the brightest moving light profile I could find, which uh, in our case was a Roby uh, BMFL, BFML. I keep. I always think it's. I think it sounds a big fucking moving light, although I don't know if that's the official title. So uh, it's this, you know, twelve hundred watts sort of discharge lamp um, from the 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 you know live events world, um, and they were the the brightest thing I could find that rigged center to center, mapped up with the distance between each window. Um, so when when each one was kind of spotted into the window and you were inside the plane, you would get parallel beams all the way down. So sort of, you know, how how can you simulate a a point source that's one Astronomical, astronomical unit away um you, you, what i didn't want to do what i've done before on planes is you know you put like a 20k um or something and you put it on a crane and wiggle it around but if you um you know you you the divergence of the beam th- from that single point through all the plane you really start to notice we were spending too much time on the plane to, to sort of get away with that so i needed to be able to have individual sort of sun uh parallel beams through each window and a fixture that that could be uh, shuttered to keep any spill off adjacent windows so you never had sort of um diverging beams so that that was stage one and then stage two was to um you know sim- how can you simulate uh movement on the plane uh we weren't able because it was such a long project like usually for a, a movie or something you'd be you'd build the whole plane as some sort of sfx rolling rig um but it was just too long so um whilst we had the the flight deck and stuff was all on on motion platforms the main body of the plane wasn't so um uh i found this uh trust motor system called kinesis that, that you're able to do almost sort of motion control positions of of um uh of, of rigging um in a stage so we had something like a 100 meter long truss the, the length of the aircraft with all of these moving lights on it was i mean it was seriously heavy um and uh, uh, and we were able to to sort of program that trust to move up and down. Um, and and as as that happened, the um, Ziggy Jacobs, our um, uh, lighting programmer, came up with a a way of sort of inter- of getting data off the Kinesis system as to sort of its trim height above the floor at any given point, and and um, and, and and sort of convincing the lighting desk that where it should be pointing was was changing um based on the height of that so the you know each spot onto each window would would the the, the light would tilt perfectly uh, this was something i i designed in blender and it's in blender it's super easy because you just you're like okay like this is your limitation always point at this window it was slightly more difficult to do it in real life um but yeah ziggy figured it out um so we had you know we were able to do like big banking moves um where the entire 
truss would travel sort of you know the whole height of the studio down to the ground and and as it did so if you were in the plane you you saw all these um kind of you know gobo cutout shapes of the window these harsh beams of light which are exposed to be you know five six stops over um key um traveling through the 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 plane um so you need really surprising how effective it is inside the plane of giving you that sort of sense of um of turning i mean it works really really well but i'm also equally intrigued as how you solve the lighting on the hero actors because again like you've got bounce surfaces lack of ability just to put stuff off to, I mean, you were saying you weren't taking seats out right i mean i'd like take every seat out other than the one was in shot for me but uh, i understand yeah, why you did it was tempting it was tempting but also like our schedule was crazy like we had so much to shoot so quickly it just would not i don't don't know how we would have done it but yes yeah, so, i mean once once i'd established like a sense of of like i i just really it needed a sense of just punchy like harshness that was sort of you had to work around so that once we'd got that bit in in, in place and then obviously there was like hundreds and hundreds of um sky panel type fixtures so with the ecl manufactured sort of soft lights that would be lighting you know the outside of the plane and be doing kind of soft uh lights down the top of the windows and inside the plane um uh they already was a lot of led um sort of tape in there which we replaced quite a lot of with sort of higher quality stuff because i just knew it was going to end up being our key lights just terrible on skin tones that stuff yeah it's not fantastic um so we, we replaced a lot of that um and mbs our brilliant lighting supplier have got some really really good led drivers now that work great for, for tv and film stuff that just super high frequency get rid of any kind of flicker issues and then i also um, because we were in there for so long, we were able to modify stuff. So there's there's a um, uh, I, I added like a, a horizontal row of of LED strips sort of built into the luggage racks all the way down. So I had like a additional kind of key light at um, the kind of eye level. Um, I mean, there were I think we had we ended up with six thousand DMX control channels on the uh, on the aircraft in that in that stage for everything that was going on and. Um, Ziggy on the console and her team were just like I just could not have done it without those guys and Ben Purcell the gaffer just th- there were there were so many fixtures and stuff going on that it was it was like it just took all of us constantly being like okay like we, we've got like thirty seconds before the next take and the next angle what can, what can we quickly how can we quickly build shape into anything given and it, so you, so you needed to like phenomenal memory of like what channels did what and what was affecting and I I did bring other you know, you could do, I mean, obviously a lot of those shots where you're traveling down the whole plane, there's nowhere to hide lights. Yeah. Like um, occasionally, I, like if I knew that a character would stop at a certain point, I would um, have some stuff outside the window to just catch them. Like if if they're standing, especially Idris, because he's so, he's such a unit, like he's, he's like eight feet tall. So like he, he he's, you know, anything I put through the window hits him at sort of waist height. So, like, you know, I often have to to get him with stuff from you know lower down. Um, but so, so, but also outside the plane to contend with, I've got you know huge LED um, you know screens doing all the clouds and stuff like that. So, so that stops you getting light in. Um, so I did, I did bring some stuff onto the plane for closer stuff. So there was there was a whole bunch of sort of little tricks we uh ended up using you know particular sizes of esteras and soft boxes and sky panels and soft boxes and we did a huge amount of uh work with the dmg dash little tiny um led fixture that that there's a sort of hemispherical very soft diffuser on and it's it's kind of you know face sized and super light it works on wireless dmx um um so that those we had those were incredibly useful so i think we had like eight of those and just every time we did a crew show we would end up like just dotting them into you know footwells or often the one of the electricians would be walking alongside camera although that was a, a yoga move in itself down that, that space but you'd, you'd have one of those on the end of like a a seat a flag arm or something so you could just get out next to the camera so um you know and just like yes challenging because like a huge range of skin tones on the plane. I was going to well. say that. I just yeah, really wanted to. Yeah, make sure that 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 everyone looked their best. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I I look back now, it seems like impossible that we pulled it off. Like it's like I sort of forgot because we also did so many shots like the editor. The editors rarely go back to a setup like um, more than once. Like they, we gave them a huge amount of stuff to choose from, like almost all the time we're, we're, we're rolling on two cameras in there. So there's really What was no outside the windows of the, of the cockpit? Because that was a separate kind of gimbal set, right, from the main... Yeah, it was a bit of both. So it was one one flight deck set, which incidentally, as a flight sim nerd, I sort of built all the avionics. That's a whole other story. Um, that was a fun little side project. Um, so all that stuff kind of worked. It, it thought it was an Airbus. Um, but the that that set, we uh, would have it in one stage um, on the front of the, the full-length set so you could travel all the way um down um sort of in, in vision uh but it was static and then and then there was a big roller shutter at that end of the stage you'd roll it through into our other stage which had a a 270 degree led volume and we we would then crane the flight deck up onto a, a motion platform in fact we, we we did two different versions of that and um initially um we 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 built we had a much bigger motion platform and we had um the, the sort of rear the, the front galley section also on the motion platform um when we had sections where we, we needed to sort of bang the characters around a bit in the back of that and then um but that was a much slower bigger platform and then we um you know for, for other sections we just had the flight deck on a much faster um platform in fact i think we were sharing our our um hydraulic uh, motion platform with fast and furious 10 at the same time so it was the same one they were using for kind of flipping people over and doing stuff so that that thing could really chuck you around so yeah outside the windows i mean the favorite for me for that set was definitely when we had it in the volume because you just benefited from this gigantic wraparound um screen that not only you were seeing kind of you know in camera you're getting your your kind of cloudscapes and various other views and stuff um as the show goes on through there but you're also obviously benefiting from the, the the screen lighting the set itself um although you know i think anyone anyone who's worked with kind of volume type i'm hesitate to call it volume type stuff because we never ha- had to do any kind of uh, camera tracking or kind of perspective because everything yeah, was always so far so enough far away. away so it was essentially essentially sort of playback um of, of various kind of assets that were created in unreal about you know and some some real plates as well um but but you, you have the same thing whereas you, you're kind of asking a lot from from the cameras and these screens because you you want to be able to both see what is on the screens and also have what is on the screens light the set and those two things are not necessarily compatible with with each other so you, you end up doing a lot of kind of you know windowing and and stuff um with with the um the team from lux on the screens because you'd like okay well this section that we're actually seeing in camera let's kind of darken that section down and the other sections that are just off the shot let's brighten those up so that you still you feel like the the sky and the cloudscapes and stuff are lighting the the flight deck but um you're still sort of just holding exposure so just to make sure i've got um, clear on that so if you've got a shot that you can see through to the sky mm-hmm. uh you might be darkening that one section down while keeping the leds off off out of your rostrum up right so that you'd get the light yeah okay yeah correct and but but then also you sort of have to think about like what does a flight deck what should it feel like to feel real and i think there's um with some of the some of the screen stuff like there's a real temptation to sort of make the exposure perfect um you know to have everything balanced and and really had to fight against that because that's not how flight decks feel like flight it's funny you should say that because i was admiring inside and really bright outside i was admiring a shot that you'd done on the ground where somebody opens a blind in a window and it just completely blew out. And I was remember thinking, like, there are just so few times where people let windows blow out the way they have to if you're in a room then you suddenly got sun coming through, right? You're just holding the exposure. It just seems like a studio to me. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. And, and like, you know, everything I do, you're trying, trying to make it, like I'm not making a documentary. Like, I'm trying to make you feel something or, or you know represent the characters in a way that, that fits where they are in the story so you know the, we have the whole section where blinds are being closed and opened and it's about them reacting to the kind of you know the sudden intrusion of of, yep. of light into the into the cabin um but you know it's a really tricky line to walk because obviously all of the 
the all of that volume stuff is tremendously expensive and like you you like i felt like i was constantly on the edge of like you don't want to blow it out you want to feel the benefit of what's out there um but you 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 know on a on a on something you know i watched a lot of stuff set on planes um in, in prep for this and and what a lot of people do is just you know you you put some diffusion on the windows or whatever you just blow it completely out and you go ah, fine. and it, that, i think that's fine like if that's sort of also what planes feel like sometimes but i think for the duration we were on this one it would have been pretty tough to sort of you'd be like oh okay it's just it's a stage isn't it so like getting those snippets of a horizon and cloudscapes and stuff out there even if it was right at the top edge of um of exposure and in, in the grade we went even further we ended up doing all kinds of um, pulling all kinds of keys and just brightening, you know, right to the edge of um, of blowing out, but still just feeling. If you if you ever back in the day when you were allowed to go visit a flight deck during the flight, um, like that's really what they feel like. You know, you have this sort of cocoon of darkness, and outside is kind of piercingly bright. And I'm really proud of some of the stuff we managed to to recapture that feel. Um, I mean, in addition to the one of the things you get off the you know the the volume is a very soft effect so i you know in that 270 around the the flight deck i also we had all kinds of um additional fixtures that were on kind of motorized trusses that i could drop in and out for different effects so that you know a lot more of those moving lights um so you could get the sense of um you know, there's there's sometimes where those lights are literally in shot there's some of the stuff in the flight deck when the pilots have their kind of sun visors down and there's just the real ping of, of sun out there and that's literally just the light in shot just focused right into the camera just to to get that awkwardness and it, it was nice putting that stuff in because the actors would just do it inherently you know you put a you know a super bright spotlight directly into someone's face and they're you know they're pulling the blinds down themselves and they and it, it's it's nice to get a sense of reality like that and just have the, the the random radiosity of hard light bouncing around and creating its own sort of um interest yeah you you made a reference to it earlier but i was going to touch on that the opening of the blinds after the uh jets are pulled off from blowing up the ship uh, the plane that that flooding of light from the it was just such an emotional beat to the drama of what had been happening so vividly represented on screen through just light alone right like you didn't need a sort of an underscoring of it just just was telling the story the light alone yeah and i think well i was obviously excited to, to have i was like great there's at least one different state i can put this plane into for a a bit of an episode i can we can kind of do a darker a darker state and i think everyone you know, it, with everything on this, like everyone's been on a long flight, right? Pretty much, so it's a precinct that you're familiar with, and um, so it's you know, I've done a week. You know, you and I have done spaceships together, and you, you have a bit more freedom to um, to kind of guess yeah, sci-fi. Um, but like, I, I think that feeling of like everyone's been on that flight when you're kind of you know, forty-five minutes out from from back home and they're like right come on everyone get your blinds up and you're kind of half asleep and the guy next to you slams that blind open and 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 all it takes like if you've got a, a flight it's early morning and every blind is down all it takes is one like it's just suddenly direct sun coming in will just bounce off everything so i was really trying to get that um get that vibe in so yeah we shot a lot of people opening blinds and i think i um I, there's uh, quite a bit of artistic license with the vertical angle of the sun in those sections. You may notice that the sun is pretty much level with the plane. Um, but you know what? Well, and it, you may also notice, as my wife has, that uh, it's kind of hazy on this plane, Ed. Like, what's going on there? I was like, yeah, it's the movies. I want to feel a little bit of texture. Can I get a quick couple of quick facts from you? Just uh, where was the plane set? Which studio were you in? Uh, we were in um, a set in Aylesbury, just uh, north of London, um, uh, that Apple had just used some Masters of the Air, which doesn't yet come out. But um, with the all of the kind of volume stuff was was in there for that, so we were able to um, uh, to kind of step in and benefit from all that. And 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 um, how long were you shooting yeah. in on that set? You mentioned. I think the whole duration of the shoot was five or six months. So you know, it was in. Um, it was in sections like, but we, uh, you'd be just because, to, you know, shooting in the plane was so intense, but we had other stages nearby. So all of the kind of the air traffic control center and the kind of, um, the, the, the government, um, Collingswood health, which is where the kind of British government 
um, responses. That was all kind of in this amazing portmanteau set um, combo set that Andrew Purcell designed, all to take advantage of another gigantic volume that was in the uh, the stage next door. So um, that oh, um, so that so that you out British to London HQ has its own LED yeah. volume outside it. Yeah. So so all of all of the London skyline you see there is um, is also volume. So we um, I sent a, a team out super early um in in prep to shoot kind of uh, london skylines from basically that where we were imagining this building was um they shot kind of 20 minutes or so um every hour from sunrise onwards so um and then the team at lux queued all that up and they they even had um big bends in the shot with the with the clock face and um i don't know how often you can see it but um the team at lux managed to to create separate layers um with the with the hours and minutes of the of Big Ben, so um, they could rotate the uh, Big Ben clock face to be the correct uh, time of day. So then we did, we had a lot of fun. So yeah, all of that. I mean, that whole set was very much designed to benefit from that huge explosion of um, of real, uh, you know, shiny floors, glass everywhere. Uh, it was stuff that I think if that had been um, you know green screen or something it would have you just would you would never have given yourself the the d spill problems um so to be able to do that set and um and then it, it also like the other side of the wall was the atc set where eve miles's character is figuring stuff out so um their kind of meeting room where that where she's on uh sort of zoom calls to them that was the same screen so they they had this kind of like duck pond view out the back of there and if you walk around the back of the set, it was kind of fun because we we often we had scenes where they were all on video conference with each other, and we would do those live. So we had the uh, people up in one side of the set being filmed on both the video conference cameras and our Alexas, and behind them was the kind of duck pond view, and then the the the, the volume which was gigantic would sort of have a dissolve in it, and then on the other side would be the London skyline with with Big Ben and stuff. So it was it was wild if you walk behind the set, but great fun to to do for real. Um, and and have that reality and there was there were a few moments where again just trying to like it's great for this big soft light that goes everywhere but you try and find harder stuff so when we first um come into that collingswood house set it's a steady cam shot um uh following archie Punjabi's character and um that was there's a, there's a nice flair in that and that, that was quite fun to to figure out a way of doing because it was one of the the plates we were using was like the early morning with the sun right in in uh, shot so but you know obviously the when it it goes from being super bright when you shoot it to just crush down to dynamic range of whatever you can get on the screen. So and those screens go bright, but like they don't, the, the range of them is is not great. From so to try and get any kind of spot thing. So I had the electricians cut out a little tiny circle of silver reflector and blue tack it onto where the um, the sun was on the screen, and then I hid it from above the set with two um, two more moving lights spotted right in. So you get this kind of you know colossally bright ping off that screen as you come round as the Selicam tracks through. Um which pretty and we did a tiny bit of tidy up on it, but it pretty much works in camera and it just I think it really helps sell that set. You come into it and you're like, oh, okay, like that this is this is real. This is the real London skyline. I was gonna ask you, you mentioned earlier about doing some stuff in in uh 3D. What what is your process for like you sound like you're quite hands-on in terms of designing up some of these sets and rigging as I mean, not the obviously production design sets, but you know what I mean. I mean, I love dabbling in in Blender. Like I'm really bad at it. Um, it's just like a, a, all those types of software. Like unless you're using it regularly, it's but like I'm fascinated by it. So it's just a kind of it, it's a it's a toy for me. Every every now and then I have some time off. I'm like I'm going to learn how to do like fur in Blender. I'm going to learn how to do physics simulation in Blender. But like I'm 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 pretty solid at doing just like basic. It, it's just it it's one of those bits of software that can kind of do everything. So it's helpful for me just to solve kind of geometry problems. Really, like um, you know I can I can quickly bang cameras in there, see what an angle of view is, see where I can hide stuff. Um, and on that the, the barrier to doing that on most projects is just you're never in one set long enough to make it worth the sort of time investment. Um, but on this set, sure was and and because i wanted to figure out all of that lighting stuff so um uh, i found a um an a330 model on turbo squared or something that was pretty close to accurate and then um uh built that out and then 
I just, I, I guess, I think this is probably familiar to a lot of your audience, but you just, you're like, oh, I wish I could do this. And then eight hours of YouTube tutorials later, you're like, you've, you've made it 1% better. You're like, where's, oh, I should have just done the quick version. But like, yeah, I spent a lot of time modifying the mesh so that the window dimension, the aperture dimensions were were precise. And actually once, this is all in my pre-production and then the art department hired a uh, an, an actual proper 3D modeler um, who then built out the rest of the aircraft. That was a really helpful asset as well. So I did a lot of kind of like um, look viz, I think you guys call it, um, to, to sort of sell um, the vibe I was imagining in terms of the kind of balance between the, the, the beams of light and the interior lighting to the rest of the, the creative team. So that, that was, you know, to, to, to have, to be able to do all of those things in Blender, like it, it in one bit of software is really helpful. Like it, I have occasionally used like, you know, SketchUp to do the sort of, you know, basic, what, what are you going to see in the shot? How big does this backing need to be type stuff? But then, you quickly run into limitations of being able to do any kind of useful rendering in SketchUp without all kinds of, of mess. Um, like Blender isn't perfect, but it does a huge amount of things really well, um, especially like now, I think during pre-production, they supported the, um, you know, the M1 Max with the GPU and stuff. So suddenly you're able to do like, you know, the, the I can't remember, either EV, the, you know, or even the, 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 the proper ray trace renderer in um, in Blender will sort of run almost real time. So you're moving a camera around and you're seeing, which is is wild for me as someone who's dabbled in 3D programs over the past sort of 20 years. That you, it's now at a point where you can just drag a camera through the space and it's like almost live rendering to keep up with you. Um, so you know, I, I don't go into too much detail with it, but certainly for figuring out the you know how that truss system was going to work what what range of of vertical movement did we have to have um like i i that was how i answered the questions to the art department of like where should we place the um aircraft body within the stage wall to sort of best benefit um because we were i i only had the my sort of sun truss as i called it down one side we offset slightly to give give more throw distance on that side but you don't want to go so far the, that you don't have space on the other side for sort of softer fill and stuff. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's, I didn't have to be the DOP doing all this stuff, but I mean, I enjoy it and it's, it's, you know, it's free. It's amazing. So, uh, I was going to ask you the exterior shots of the plane of which there aren't a ton. I presume they're just straight VFX shots, right? was, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of VFX. Oh, I'm so things. happy you said that, Mike. I'm so happy. <laughs> no, they're not. We they're not VFX. We um, I wouldn't know. They're all they're pretty much all for real. Um, so we. What about um, the leverage on the actual plane, the, the the actual airline, as it were? So yeah, that's that's a wrap. That's a VFX wrap. But the like like really early from the start, Jim, Phil, Smith, and I were like, we have to. The plane stuff has to be real, and like it, it, it just. We, we have to go and shoot that stuff for real because we were really worried. And the, the and Steve Berg, our VFX supervisor, like legendary Steve Berg, is you know has this amazing background in in um, miniatures. Like he guided all the miniatures on Golden Knight. Like he, it, uh, it just so many great stories from Steve. But you know he was the same. I think most VFX people say that, you know if you give us something, give us something that's as real as possible, and let us do like. If if you shoot if you shoot an airliner for real and you have all of the limitations that that um, involves, you have something that has that just has a a, a reality to it that when you add the VFX stuff that that you have to, um, the shot just works in a way that I think if you were starting completely from scratch, um, there there would be a danger of of it just feeling too having too much possibilities a big believer in like you know your best work comes from having restrictions and um uh, so hang on so you, what, you hired a jumbo what i mean not jumbo but whatever it sure is sure did like, we, we, an a330 yeah so we had um is that easy to do to hire an a330 like what the heck yeah so it turns out i mean <laughs> again i'm a huge plane dad so this is like a dream come true so we hired it a few times so it turns out that the british government use Airbus A330s, which was our picture aircraft, and there was this was not a coincidence. Like it was a different airliner originally, and um, we we had a team of consultants who were like, you know what? Like if you make this an A330, um, there's a variant that Airbus make of the A330 um, that is a air-to-air refueling tanker, um, and 
the British government, actually, they outsource it. But effectively, the RAF have a number of these, um, and they are dual-purpose uh, refuel, so they can refuel fighters and they um, can take passengers. Um, and so there's there's a company in the UK that sort of contracts the RAF to supply these called Air Tanker. Um, and it turns out you can just call up Air Tanker and be like, hey, we'd like to rent a um, A330 for the day, please. Um, and um, so we, um, it, it, you know, really early on in the fleet, we shot the, the stuff of Sam getting onto the plane in Dubai. That was all shot at London Stansted Airport, which is as far from Dubai as you can imagine. So um, there's a ton of, of really great VFX work done sort of to, to in the background to make that all Dubai-y. Um, but that was, yeah, we, we, so we were shooting all those, that opening scene of Sam coming down the travelator and stuff. And I was like simultaneously on my phone, on my like favorite flight tracking app, tracking our own private airliner, which we'd, it flew from RAF Bryce Norton, which was like, you know, 10 miles away and landed at Stansted. So we, it was like, you know, usually on the call sheet, you have your like list of picture vehicles. You're like, yeah, we've got this guy's like Ford Escort and this van for this character and Airbus A330. Um, so it had its own flight number. I, I, I have an iPhone video of it landing and taxiing up to the gate. And we literally, we used it for, um, it's in the background of the shots of him boarding. And then we, we, uh, all the sequence of it kind of pushing back and its engine starting. Uh, we did all that for real. Um, the, 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 um, team from air tanker was super helpful. They obviously really enjoyed it as well. And the team from Stansted airport as well. So we were able to all get airside, uh, John O'Tyler with his Steadicam rig, I literally sent him out. Like they did the whole pushback. He was following alongside with it. I, not all of, I mean, <laughs> not all of it got used, obviously, but it was super fun to shoot. Like he he walked out with the nose gear as the engines were starting. Um, it was kind of amazing to uh, to see. Um, we filmed it taking off. So, and then, but, and then well, the I imagine you must have had people in it when it was flying, right? Because that would be the best sort of reference for what the light was in the cockpit and everything right you could we actually we talked about that we never ended up doing that we did a um even as we, a plane nerd you didn't want thing... to go up in the cockpit and uh, well get a we light did, meter out i and... mean that i'll get on to the air to air stuff because that was that was pretty wild um we did we did a plate camera shoot with a with a tracking vehicle with a with a cat i can't remember we we figured out the exact eye point uh, off the ground. Um, we we thought there was going to be more of a section of sort of taxiing that we would need to to see plates for. So we did uh, send a tracking vehicle out with like an array of um, of, of eight um, reds. I think I can't remember exactly, and and like a dome uh, uh, camera as well um, that that did the did the entire pushback sequence. That was that was pretty fun. I wasn't I wasn't there for that, but. They they literally air traffic control at Stansted let them be a plane basically so they sort of you know reversed off the gate um, it was a a big tracking vehicle with a with a truss you know the correct height and all the cameras on the top and then they amongst all the other air air traffic at Stansted like taxied out almost onto the runway so we had that plate which sadly with that whole section we didn't really get to use but that was fun um, but yeah then the the big return of air tanker was right at the end of the shoot. Um, so we had this brilliant aerial coordinator, Jamie Hunter, who who does loads. I mean, he's he's got a cool job. Like he he does lots of he sits in the back seat of the jets. So like when you see kind of footage from the Red Arrows or kind of you know all kinds of military forces from um, around the world, Jamie sort of specialises in filming a lot of that stuff. And he had you know fantastic contents uh, contacts with uh, Air Tanker and various kind of other. Um, providers who could help with the aerial filming so we ended up arranging um i mean it, this took a lot of coordination over the course of the year but we uh, eventually november the, the perfect time to be shooting aerials not um uh we we booked out air tanker their a330 and put and jamie put together this um this this um sort of fleet of three camera aircraft um of which i was in one of them so we um this we based everything out of um north wales and we had a uh peter Degerfeld, another aerial dp i was in with him in a, a twin commander which is like a, a, a twin engines kind of turboprop um that had a um a, a sort of gss 
gimbal, kind of like a Cineflex with a with a red in it that comes down out of the belly that we were able to. The max speed of that aircraft was something like 210 knots. And the the speed of the A330 clean with all its flaps up, which was how we needed to film it, was something like 205 knots. So that was the slowest they could go and just about the fastest we could go. So um, a huge amount of planning to be able to get everyone in formation. And then uh, Jamie um was was there's these two there's these aircraft called strike masters which is like a, a an aria train twin seater uh training jet um that, that is sort of aerobatically capable and jamie's used them a lot in the past to do um uh sort of air to air shoots so um they had the advantage of if the weather was bad being able to to you know get in closer and, and work higher up than we could in the twin commander um, and then Ian Black, who's our, um, our pilot advisor, is an ex-commercial pilot in wide-body airliners. He also does aerial air-to-air work. He was in another strike master. So we had this very complicated system of um, of when people were arriving, what we were doing, all of the shots marked out, like figuring out a formation where all the speeds worked out. So um, and, and we, we'd booked out this A330 for... I don't know an hour and a half of of time alongside so we all got up in the air fortunately we were incredibly lucky with the weather um we we were all up in the air and i mean i will remember for a very long time seeing the sight of this a330 just drifting drifting up from bryce norton towards us and then sort of falling into formation and just being right alongside and these are like raf military pilots flying all this stuff the the guys flying the the strike master one of them was an ex red arrow pilot like they're sort of it was <laughs> i was just trying not to embarrass myself <laughs> but we got just absolutely remarkable shots completely really beautiful um the, the um just and and like sort of effectively every frame was usable uh but the we were lucky in that the for VFX purposes, the air tankers are just completely plain white. So the, uh, the all the sort of artwork for the plane was designed to be, you know, easy to wrap onto a um, uh, a, a white aircraft. So so that was the only VFX work really. Um, they they did an exceptional job tracking the um, aircraft in lots of sort of dynamic shots and the the um, you know the, the the logo stuff all looked great. And I, I really I'm convinced that just having the the, the weight and the complexity of filming the real airliner comes across in the shots. Um, so the um, the fighters and stuff are, are VFX. We weren't sadly able to get some um, actual Eurofighters up alongside, though we would have done if we could. Um, we did have a real Eurofighter cockpit for the the, the interior stuff. Um, but yeah, then that was literally the last thing I, sh- I shot was the air to air. So it was a pretty spectacular finish. Um, and then the our three editors, once they saw that footage, was just sort of fighting over who got who got to put what shot in their episode as soon as that stuff came in. Um, I'm dead proud of that element. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff looks like it's the air to air stuff looks like it's out of a what I would call a uh, the heyday of a uh, British Airways commercial, right? Really gorgeous. Yeah, I, we tried to you know we we tried to get um, you know a mix of uh, of stuff because I was really you know, we, we did a lot of frames that were because that sort of style of um, the, the the airline commercials is like really like it tends to be like long lens and it's like tracking shots passing behind. Um, and so we tried to not do too much of that stuff. Like we we um, that was one of the reasons I went up with them to just try and get sort of more like graphic frames, like you know, lots of weird headroom, lots of you know stuff where we saw the plane smaller in the sky and it was about the the kind of uh, the, the cloudscape and, and stuff like that. So I, I hope we got a mix and it doesn't all look like an airline commercial. Um, I meant that as a compliment. It's sure. just, I'm thinking of a particular, <laughs> there's a shot from the side of the plane and it just looks gorgeous, right? I mean, it's just so, it's it's uh, down the port side of the plane and it's just, yeah. And it looked so I really good loved the, that I was um, like... I really loved the, uh, the ending of episode three, which ends with a gun going off and you don't know who's been shot. And, and on the gunshot, they just cut to an aerial shot and they just held on it. Like often you do these shots and, it, and, and you go like, oh, it's so beautiful, but they'll never use all of that. I, they used all of it like it's and that's that's uh that was a shot that peter Degerfeld operated and you know that's he's probably like a 200 mil um 
and and we were coming over the top of the plane the pilots we had as well were fantastic and so all the coordination for to make those sort of shots work and uh, like that 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 gimbal was working pretty hard as to say we were like flat out in that in that aircraft to try and keep up with this airbus um we were it was funny like we were hoping to film um a kind of an approach um with uh with them like you know and, and then and the go around and stuff and it just unfortunately as we we were in an amazing formation kind of into therefore we were better we got all the, the gear the you know the landing gear dropping and the flaps coming out and everything and then just as we were kind of i don't know a thousand feet up um we did just all three of us all just disappeared into thick cloud and i just you could hear like on the radio the air tanker guy being like can you guys see us <laughs> and um it's like okay this isn't gonna work out and then you know you're in a cloud and from about like 100 meters to one side you hear an airbus like going full like you know go around power and just put i mean it's it was pretty awesome um i mean like and and just coordinated and conducted in such a kind of like meticulous military safe manner that like it never felt anything other than, than totally legit but like a lot of fun well it's been great talking to you about this um great work mate thanks so much thank you well thank you so much ed for taking the time to chat with us i really appreciated hearing more of the details of what happened behind the camera in the filming of the hijack series really really interesting cool stuff very much looking forward to next week, which is Seagraph 2023 in L.A. I'm actually going to jump on a plane in L.A. in a couple days and meet Mike in Los Angeles. Really looking forward to him and also really looking forward to seeing any of you who might be at the show. If you happen to see Mike or I at a session or on the show floor, please take the time to say hi. You know, so much of what we do is one way from FX Guide to you. We don't get a bunch back in return. So we really appreciate and enjoy hearing from our listeners and readers. Well, that's it for this week. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.